Welcome to the GLMX podcast series, where we explore key structural and technological developments across the global repo markets. Hello, I'm Jeremy Grant. Welcome to the second episode of GLMX's podcast series. We're looking at the LIBOR transition and whether financial markets are ready. I'm joined by GLMX's COO and Chief Markets Officer, Sal Gilio, and today's guest, Andy Ross, CEO at Curve Global. Sal has extensive experience in trading short-term interest rate instruments, as well as a comprehensive knowledge of the secured funding business. Before joining GLMX, Sal was Managing Director at BNP Paribas, where he managed a team of traders, implemented liquidity discipline, and navigated interest rate and credit risks. In addition to BNP, Sal has worked at several major Wall Street banks, including JP Morgan and Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Andy, meanwhile, has over 20 years' experience in financial markets. He's been heavily involved in a number of key industry initiatives in the listed OTC and counterparty risk management space, which includes serving on CCP risk committees and industry association boards. Before joining Curve Global in 2016, Andy worked at Morgan Stanley, where he was most recently managing director and European head of OTC clearing. Andy, if I could just start with you kind of high level on this whole LIBOR transition issue, which I think is one of those issues that's been bubbling away for the last few years. It makes headlines from time to time, but probably a lot of our listeners need a little bit of reminding as to where we're at with the LIBOR transition. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you, Sal, for the opportunity to speak today. I think that there's a few things. First of all, what is LIBOR? It's the London Interbank Offered Rate. And what is really interesting about it is it's the rate that people would lend money unsecured to each other. Listeners may remember that there was quite a lot of controversy of that because that rate back in the financial crisis of 08, possibly before, possibly afterwards, seemed to be moved or unrepresentative of things that were going on in the market. Actually, people have gone to jail and a significant amount of fines have been paid for manipulation of that rate. And so there's a sense that that is a tainted instrument. I have to say that the IBA has nice benchmarks administration, that rate, and has done a, a tremendous job of what I would call cleansing it and making it fit for purpose and preventing manipulation. But the fundamental reason that LIBOR is going away is that there are no underlying lending transactions anymore. So the concept is what you would lend money from one bank to another. The banks don't really unsecured lend money to one another anymore. There are a plethora of other ways that they trade, secured, repo financing, central bank money, but they don't do a lot of these trades. And as such, the price in terms of where LIBOR is marked, what LIBOR would trade at, is estimated, guessed, evaluated, you can choose your own technical term, by banks every single day, even though it's not trading. And that is then submitted to the IBA to then aggregate that data and populate that out. What's interesting is that those banks are going to no longer be compelled to submit that data by the end of 2021. So LIBOR is going to be impacted and go away. So why do we care? What's the big deal about that? LIBOR goes away. Who cares? Well, LIBOR has been described not by me, but by someone significantly clever as the world's biggest number. There are trillions of dollars worth of mortgages, loans, interest rate swaps, futures and derivatives, structured products, bonds, you name it, that are referenced on this floating interest rate. And therefore, its removal 
is like trying to live on the earth without water to some extent. It's like the financial glue that holds the whole system together. And given that the system evolved and developed, nobody really understood that this rate wasn't that good an idea and wasn't particularly well regulated. And so we've clearly over time got to a point when it is now superbly well regulated and superbly well run. But the reality is that still underlying transactions don't occur in it. And so therefore, the regulator, the official body, the official sector have a program to move people, move the industry off of LIBOR um, onto a variety of other rates. And we can discuss those more as time goes by in the coming months and into the end of 2021 as a target date, which we would call cessation in terms of the technical language. If you were to think about this in terms of the progress towards this 2021 deadline that you just mentioned, suddenly into that, you've got the pandemic, COVID-19. Where are we at with progress on that? Has it slowed things down? Has it not changed things much? Let me give you an example from the UK. And why the UK is an interesting example is it's clearly smaller, but the Bank of England clearly regulate the banks that are putting these submissions in. As I mentioned, it was LIBOR being the London interbank offer rates. And so what we have there is we had an example where the replacement rate for LIBOR in the UK is something called SONIA. And that rate, SONIA, the Bank of England decreed pretty soon that we should have a SONIA first policy, i.e. swaps and banks trade and quotes on SONIA first. And in the midst of the pandemic and the heightened volatility, frankly, that didn't go very well. However, the Bank of England regrouped, the market regrouped. And a few weeks ago, we went for SONIA first, Mark II. And since that point, I would say that we've seen a marked shift. We always had swaps trading in new indexes, but we've had interesting growth in futures trading. We've had interesting growth in swaps trading. And I would say that over 50% of the risk now is being transacted in Sonia in the UK market, this LIBOR replacement, and people are quoting Sonia first. And so I would argue that we saw a slowdown in the teeth of the pandemic, but People of, I guess, much like the rest of the world, have got to a point where they're coping with the new normal. And whether that new normal is being at home in your lounge or um, your kitchen table or whatever, the reality of that situation is that the market has been able to adapt and move forward and build on these changes. Now, does that mean we're a long way through or does that mean we're just at the foothills of our climb in terms of this change? I feel like we're through the foothills, but I still think there's a long way to go to reach the peak of LIBOR replacement. Right. That's a great visual. Thank you. Sal, if I may turn to you, for the LIBOR transition to really take hold, what have been the key issues for regulators and industry bodies when selecting new risk-free reference rates? Sure. Thank you, Jeremy. And Andy, I appreciate that overview and kind of bringing us to today. It's been a long journey since the great financial crisis. You know, what I would say is that you touched on it as far as, you know, LIBOR itself, although fairly ubiquitous in the financial industry, is not a transaction-based benchmark. You said it was a survey at best. And it really isn't reflective of the true market cost of transactions. And the way to find the true market cost of a transaction is to look at transactional data. And the Fed convened the uh, Alternative uh, Reference Rate Committee in the U.S. several years ago to look for an alternative to LIBOR. 
And after reviewing several different possible replacements, they settled in on SOFR, which is Secured Overnight Financing Rate, based primarily on repo transactions in the marketplace. It's a mix of treasury repo tri-party and treasury DVP trades that go through the FICC, as well as something that's called general financing uh, collateral GCF or general collateral financing GCF, which also goes through FICC. And at the best of times, I think LIBOR might've been based off of a couple hundred million dollars worth of actual transactions, if that. And perhaps today, there really are no transactions. The overnight treasury repo market is substantial. It might be one of the biggest marketplaces in the financial industry, anywhere from $750 billion to a trillion dollars worth of transactions go through the marketplace. So when going through criteria for establishing a benchmark, repo seems to kind of check most of the boxes or all the boxes, actually. I mean, it's a highly liquid market. The volume's pretty massive. It actually is almost a flight to quality product, given that it's a secured lending vehicle, as well as it's secured with quote unquote risk-free treasuries. So you see a lot of unsecured money going into repo during illiquidity or credit crunches. And it's fairly resilient as far as data. There's a lot of data out there. So if you want to create a backward looking benchmark, it's been uh, around for 30 years and it's a fairly active market and feels to be used by the complete marketplace. So you're replacing, again, something that is hypothetical now with something that you see in the marketplace and is highly liquid. So from my perspective, I think, yep. and yeah, I may be uh, quoting my background, which is front-end trading. I think they found the right benchmark to replace LIBOR. Okay. Just sticking with you, Sal, for a second. If participants fail to close out their trades tied with the old benchmark, what risks and problems are they likely to experience? And what do you think are the wider implications of that? That is an interesting topic to delve into. I'll I'll touch kind of the surface of it. I mean, the big risk with LIBOR, I would say, or, or transitioning from LIBOR to SOFR or other benchmarks is documentation. And I think, uh, Andy, you touched on trillions. I, I think it's upwards of $200 trillion worth of LIBOR reference securities and loans that exist and derivatives. And that's just the US-based, yeah. And 95% of that is in derivatives, interest rate swaps, et cetera. I think that is being addressed by, uh, you know, change in language by ISDA, which is kind of an industry group. I think they recently announced a change in fallback language, and I think it goes into effect uh, in January, and that will address the majority of, of new transactions going forward. And the fact that it's so essential, that marketplace, I do think we'll be able to work through existing transactions that go beyond the uh, December 31st deadline. But the real issue in the U.S. is kind of in that 5% category where you know, you have commercial loans and consumer-based loans like adjustable rate mortgages and home equity loans, student loans and credit cards, and insecurities, primarily in securitizations. 
that don't have a lot of fallback language in there that says that if LIBOR is no longer published, then what is the reference that you would fall back to? And some documents, there is none, which is obviously a problem. And even in others where there is fallback language, it's more of a, well, what was the last LIBOR rate published? You'll refer to that or possibly we'll pull all the banks and have a LIBOR-like rate and use that. And in the first instance, it's pretty obvious when you look at floating rate notes that they're designed to protect both the borrower and lender from term interest rate exposure. They're designed to reflect the current rate environment. So if you were to do a reference on the last published rate, which would never change going forward after December 31st, you're effectively turning your floating rate note into a fixed rate, which creates obviously a lot of issues beyond just the P&L issue. A lot of buyers of floating rate notes are regulated. Money market funds, 40-ACK or 2A7 funds in the U.S. are not allowed to own securities beyond a certain maturity. And they are able to get around that with floating rate notes that may have a longer maturity but have a resetting rate. In that instance, they'd be forced to liquidate and probably liquidate into a market that is not very friendly for that type of product with a locked-in LIBOR rate. So would potentially take a loss. And that obviously creates problems for super liquid product like a money market fund. You know, and as Andy said, a lot of banks have paid significant fines over the years based on their LIBOR submission. And I doubt in this marketplace, you'd be able to get a bank to quote a LIBOR-like rate. So I don't think that second fallback works. So what does that lead to? It leads to litigation. In the U.S., we're very good at that, and that creates a big problem that the industry needs to kind of focus on and make sure they find solutions. My understanding is that part of the pandemic issue, and I think it's kind of trickled into IBA, making an announcement the other day that U.S. dollar LIBOR transition is not a certainty to end at the end of next year, which created a flurry of trading in futures markets. But I think an issue to solve a lot of this documentation problems is legislation. And you know we're waiting for New York to come out with some sort of legislation to help, quote unquote, force the participants or counterparties in these transactions to work together, if not fall back on some SOFR slash spread adjusted SOFR rate. So I think what has happened with the pandemic, it's kind of delayed that and kind of had a ripple effect with IBA coming out and saying they're not entirely sure of the timing for the U.S., although I do hope that legislation will come forward to solve that. Thanks, Al. I mean, the great thing about this podcast is that we can switch back and forth between both sides of the pond. So I'm going to switch back to the UK here with Andy. What are you seeing in terms of Sonia vis-a-vis uptake of alternative risk-free reference rates in the context of Sonia in the UK? I think we're certainly seeing swaps market develop. When you think about a swaps market, the risk that you have of trading a one-year trade versus the risk you have of trading a 30-year trade is very different for the same notional. So notional is not a great measure. And we've had significant notional already trading in Sonia and have been for the last few months, a few years, in fact. But what we've seen over the last few weeks is we've definitely seen an increase in trading all the way along the curve and longer maturities. And I think that is a key development in that market. 
Now, I would say that there is an interesting point, and to pick up on something Sal said, it's talking about his 5%. I think there is an interesting question about the 5%. So if you think about what LIBOR did, it gave you a term rate. It told you what three-month money would be. And if you think what Sonia is, it's an unsecured overnight sterling rate. And if you think, as Sal just described, what SOFA is, it's an overnight secured funding rate in dollars. Now, what's interesting is if you need a term rate, what do you do? What we have found by a significant amount of pushing over this side of the pond is that the use cases for the term rates have diminished, but there are still use cases, legacy book positions, for example. And so what do you do? Do you need to generate a term rate? Who's going to generate a term rate? Should there be competition? Should there be more than one rate? And I think those are very interesting questions on both sides of the Atlantic. Here, there's a three-way debate going on between FTSE, um, which is colleagues of mine at the LSE group, and Refinitiv, and ICE Benchmarks in terms of who should provide or who can provide a sterling rate. In the US, the ARC have just asked for RFIs in terms of interest in developing a term rate in the US. And then you've also got other interesting developments of rates, such as Ameribor, Doc Sanders, secured lending that's getting a billion dollars plus a day transacting through it. And so I think what you have is a question here on terms of that 5%, which is, do you think that the market solves that with one solution? Or actually, does the market develop a number of solutions that better fit the risk profile of those individuals involved? And I think there are similarities between the UK and the US in terms of those development challenges and where they are in that pipeline for solutions coming forward. Right. I'm going to flip back to Sal here. You were mentioning repo earlier on. We have a question here specifically to do with volatility. With repo transactions underpinning the secured overnight financing rate, what issues are we likely to see in times of periodic volatility? And what steps has GLMX taken this year to help customers address this? During times of volatility, people look to be as safe as possible and secured transactions are safer than unsecured and having high quality collateral backing that is even better. So from a volatility perspective, a repo is fairly liquid in times of stress, especially the type that underlies SOFR. But I think it is reflective of funding rates. There have been certain times recently where there is stress in the repo market and rates have fluctuated for a variety of reasons. But the rates that come out, whether it's SOFR or other averages, tend to be a lot lower than the last 1% or 2% of repo that gets done in the day because of the kind of structure of the marketplace. The majority of the repo gets done kind of first thing in the morning in a very condensed window. And it's relationship driven. So, you know, this is persistent credit that exists between two counterparties and these are long term relationships. So you'll see rates elevated, but it's not a situation where you're holding your counterparty for ransom. So I think repo is a good product again and is very representative of the true cost to get finance. From a GLMX perspective, I mean, we are a trading platform. We bring the counterparties together to negotiate and trade repo, but we also bring technology and connectivity to allow the trades and the negotiations to stream back into our counterparty systems real time. And that's essential during a time of stress because you don't want to get caught out there trying to fund 10% of your book when 
the cost to fund that has risen by percentage points. It will ruin your day at a minimum and, and may ruin your P&L for the month. And there is reputational risk as well. You're caught out there and people think you may have trouble funding. So by executing on our platform, your position is updated real time as opposed to manually processing these trades with a delay and you don't know your real-time position. So GLMX continues to build automation on the platform and different ways to connect to the platform for real-time position management, which definitely helps in times of stress. And actually, if there's one lesson that comes out of COVID in terms of trading market infrastructure and so forth, it is people have really woken up to the fact that what they thought they might have had in terms of equipment that was for purpose they thought was in fact not because they simply weren't real time enough. And we see this right across the piece, I think it's fair to say. Turning to Andy again, Curve Global announced plans to expand its products and geographies in the US this year. What role are dollar markets playing in driving participants towards new risk-free rates? So yeah, look, we have a long-term ambition to be dollars. We haven't concretely put a date out there yet. We feel like it's essential that we are better and bigger in the sterling market. And if you think about futures for a second, well, Saldo's easily provides lots of connectivity in the repo market, which is a disparate market. And while some big back-end infrastructure providers. In the futures market, liquidity used to be on the floor with people in pits and bright colored jackets shouting at each other with hand signals. And that migrated onto screens. And that's kind of where the innovation stopped. But in a world where Apple have got like this M1 chip that can do 3 trillion calculations a second, I mean, five years ago, you'd needed a computer the size of my house to do 3 trillion calculations a second. The ability for us to move forward in terms of data is vast. And so we think that the futures market can do with some competition. And that's what Curve Global does is it says, look, we've listed some products in euros, we've listed some products in sterling, and we're competing with risk equivalent products and clearing them into the LCH, where a huge proportion of the world's repos clear and also a huge proportion of the world's interest rate swaps clear. And with the latter, we get some significant netting and and margin offset benefits. And so one of the challenges for us is how do you break into that market? And so whether it's sterling, as we've just discussed, or dollars, the fact that there is a change in that benchmark, the fact that that is something that is developing, is clearly an opportunity. Because where... The market changes. People go and look, I think, fundamentally at what they're doing. Why should we do that? Is there somewhere we can get a better one, a different one, something that fits our needs very well? And so I think our key criteria of success is to persuade people that you don't just need to roll from the existing thing into the new thing, but you can raise your head, have a look around and find out if there's a better, cheaper, smarter, just talking about Salah, not myself, um, (laughs) a way of doing it. Okay, great. Thank you for that. We're coming up to time here, but I wanted just to zoom back out again and give you both an opportunity to do a bit of crystal ball gazing. We have the deadline of 2021 for the LIBOR transition. Do you expect to see participants accelerating their preparation for LIBOR's demise? And will, I suppose this is sort of the $64 million question, will LIBOR transactions be reliable past the end date? Let me start with Sal, if I may. I do think you're going to see an acceleration. I think, again, in the, in the U.S., and to touch on Andy's point, the adoption of SOFR, SOFR futures, is not to the same level as it is for Sonia, for sure. So there is an opportunity for growth. I think, again, SOFR is a more natural fit from a hedging perspective for those in the front-end trading markets than 
Fed Fund Futures, which built a very strong derivative trading or supported a big derivative trading market in overnight index swaps based off of Fed Fund Futures. That is starting to grow in the U.S. By no means is it taken over. But it is growing anywhere from five to ten, five to twenty percent of the interest rate swaps are starting to be based on SOFR. Still a lot of room to go from there. And then from a hedging perspective, talking to users of our technology, some users are hedging their book with fifty percent or fifty percent of their book with SOFR futures, others are just still using um, Fed fund futures. So there is a lot of room to grow and I think that will accelerate as you know, we move through 2021. As I said before, I do think that the interest rate derivative market will police itself well and move forward. I think that 5% is going to be trickier. I'm sure there you know, will be a cottage industry of cash set up to buy uh, instruments that may not have clear fallback language or may fall between the legislation that eventually gets passed and you know, they'll be able to buy something uh, for X and turn it into 2X or something by negotiating. But with that said, I do think we move fairly quickly through 2021 and we see those percentages increase and liquidity in those products increase as well. From a GLMX perspective, you know, one of the things that we would like to see ideally is as we get more and more of the buy side to sell side transactions going through the platform is the possibility of contributing to a term SOFR rate, right? So if we have X amount of one month and X amount of three month volume going through the platform, that could be fairly significant. Perhaps we can contribute to a benchmark rate that helps alleviate that credit component that doesn't exist in SOFR today. And hopefully that is something that we can contribute in the next year or so. And then do I think LIBOR will be reliable past the end date? You know, there is talk, again, with these sticky instruments and poorly worded contracts that there may be some sort of synthetic LIBOR that has to exist just to fit these edge cases. But from a holistic perspective, from a market ubiquitous perspective, LIBOR as we know today will not exist. Okay, great. Thank you, Sal. And Andy, a final word from you. I think that the market is clearly moving forward and there's been lots of examples that we've talked about on this call, both Sal and I, that highlight those developments. I still think there are some hugely difficult parts of the market, and Sal touched on that in terms of changes to law perhaps, but if you imagine you've got bonds currently, you require 100% of the shareholders in some jurisdictions to agree to change the bond. But what if the right of that bond doesn't exist? Because Sal said the LIBOR fallbacks were kind of envisaged for someone couldn't produce it for one day, not that it would go away forever. And so there is a, there's some, still some huge challenges. And when you think about the development of interdependent markets, so cross-currency swaps is one that I hark on about a bit. What are the underlying bases there? Is it LIBOR? Is it secured on one side and unsecured on the other? How does that work? How does that price? And then even in the transition, as again, Sal mentioned, is to have a protocol. There's over 200 people have signed up to that protocol now, which is fantastic, and just shows you the momentum we're making. It still says, look, there's lots of people here who are going to be like, I'm going to be up on that trade or I'm going to be down on that trade and are waiting to be made whole. And that adjustment based on where the risks are in terms of long-term receiving a little less money or long-term paying a little less money. And so the that whole process is still got some kind of realizing money issues, 
Does that have tax liability issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? So I still think there is an awful lot of wood to chop here in this migration, but the official sector's ardor is not diminishing. If anything, it's more clear to them that they need an infrastructure that is based on real and consistent and ever-lasting transactions and not based on people guessing where the numbers are. And I've got to say that as a humble market practitioner, as opposed to a trader, I guess I have a view that I think they're spot on and right. Great. You've been listening to episode two of the GLMX podcast series, talking about LIBOR transition. I'd just like to thank today's guest, Andy Ross, CEO of Curve Global, and Sal Gillio, GLMX's CRO and Chief Markets Officer. Thanks very much. 